When you see a dog being sold at a pet store or online, did you ever wonder, where did it come from? Where's its mother? This is exactly what we're going to talk about today. I chat with John Goodwin, Senior Director of the Stop Puppy Mills campaign at the Humane Society of the United States, to learn more about the entire pipeline, from how puppies are produced to how they are distributed and sold. Let's dive right in. Welcome to the EcoChat Podcast. In each episode, we chat with experts in conservation, animal welfare, sustainability, or environmental science to learn how you and I can make a difference for the planet. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, John, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm good as well. Thank you. Pleasure to have you here. Well, I'm really happy to be here. Our topic today is something I'm very passionate about, and it's gotten more exposure over the recent years, but I think still a lot of people aren't aware of it. So let's start with this. When someone buys a dog from a pet store or even from online, where does the dog likely come from? Yeah, so most pet store puppies are from puppy bills. And if you think about it, it just makes sense. High-volume pet retailers rely on high-volume pet breeders. And that's where you get into the area of puppy mills. If you have a pet store with 30 glass display cases that you need to keep filled with puppies all year round, different breeds, you don't want to have to go through a Rolodex of 400 responsible breeders seeing who has a litter of puppies on the ground. No, you'd rather go to one of these brokers that uh, utilizes puppy mills or directly to a couple puppy mills themselves and uh, just keep stocked that way. Uh, and, and so that's what this business model is based on. Okay, so these dogs likely come from puppy mills. What exactly is a puppy mill? Sure. A puppy mill is a commercial dog breeding operation that puts profits ahead of the welfare of the animals that fails to keep the animals in conditions that meet their basic needs. And by basic needs, I mean not just food and water, but psychological health, emotional health. Uh, so, you know, not giving them enough exercise or socialization. Viewing, is, viewing them as livestock or agriculture commodities. So usually when you go to a puppy mill, they can look they can have different uh, formats based on whether or not they're raising large dogs, small dogs, or medium dogs. But what you're always going to find is rows and rows of cages with dogs whose entire life is spent in that cage being treated like a breeding machine, bred every heat cycle till their bodies wear out. And at that point, they're usually killed. So just a quick recap, it's basically a factory of lots of dogs kept in cages giving birth to puppies at scale to be sold commercially. Is that correct? That's right. And some of them have hundreds of dogs. Some will have three, four, even 500 dogs. Uh, there have been a few that even had as many as a thousand. And I'll give you an example. There's a little town called Menlo, Kansas. They have a puppy mill there. Now, there have been times when that puppy mill has had over 1,000 dogs. The population of Menlo in terms of human beings, 62. Only 62 people live there, but yet they have a facility with a 1,000 dogs. Now, you know that not all of those 62 people work 
at that puppy mill. Probably only a small handful do. So you just don't have a, a sort of staffing to dog ratio where the dogs are going to get any sort of individual care. And that's a problem, especially with this one species that is so bonded to human beings. Definitely. So since the role of puppy mills is to produce puppies at scale, I assume most of the dogs that are kept there are mothers? Yeah, so they're going to have more females than males, you know, because the females, they're the ones that are producing all the puppies. One male can obviously breed a large volume of females. Now, a lot of these places might raise five or six different breeds, and so it's not like they can just rely on one male dog because they might want a male who's a Yorkie, and they might want a male who's a pug, and they might want one who's a golden retriever. But it's the, the large the large lion's share of the adult dogs, the breeding dogs, will be the mothers. Okay, let's talk about the parents first. So where do the mothers come from, and where do the fathers come from? So some of them are going to be puppies that didn't sell, uh, or in some instances they might be dogs that they just wanted to hold back to use as breeding stock. In other instances, they might have gone bought what they call breeding stock from another puppy mill owner. Uh, that would be a necessity, in fact, if they wanted to start raising a breed that they didn't currently have. So if you were raising like five breeds, but none of there were pugs, you'd need to go buy some breeding stock from another puppy mill. But it, it's, it's just that simple. I mean, this isn't like dog show world where they're seeking out specific individuals that have a specific physical structure or a physical, you know, some sort of physical characteristic uh, that would make them ideal for a breeding program. This is mass production. Is put any dogs together. Uh, it doesn't matter where they came from as long as the puppies will be marketable. Is there any need or preference for the parents to be pure breeds? Like, for example, 100% husky. Well, I think that a lot of times they're going just on physical appearance alone rather than any sort of DNA tests. So if they want to produce a purebred pug, they'll take two dogs that look like pugs and breed them together. Uh, they're not doing, you know, an embark DNA test to make sure that that dog doesn't have uh, some other breed in the, you know, from, from two generations back. Now, that said... A lot of these puppy mills are actually intentionally producing mixed breeds these days. That's when you get into your, you know, your golden doodles and your, you know, cavapoos and any of these little designer names where they take parts of two breed names and kind of switch them together. Those are very popular. I don't think that they account for half of the puppies that are being produced in puppy mills at this point, but they could be 35, 40% at this point, because that's just become such a big thing. Let's talk about the mother first. Can you describe what life is like for her, just being in the puppy mill pretty much all her life? What's that like? Living in a puppy mill is a very barren and boring existence. So the USDA regulations allow for a puppy mill owner to keep a dog in a cage that's only six inches longer than her body. 
that's extreme confinement. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, that that dog's enclosure is double that minimum size. All right. So baseline regulation, the cage has to be at least six inches longer than the dog's body. Double that. That's still smaller than a closet. Now, Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. I mean, so they're not usually putting little soft beds in these enclosures to sleep on. They're not giving them chew toys or anything to provide any sort of mental stimulation. It's just a barren, boring existence. The dogs will be fed a couple times a day, hopefully. Uh, maybe they'll get a pat on the head if they have the confidence to go to the front of a cage. Many of them don't and will cower in the back of the cage. But anything beyond that is 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 very rare. Now, due to pressure from groups like ours, the Humane Society of the United States, uh, some puppy mills claim that they're putting in turnout yards, which would be a fenced-in area where a dog could come out periodically and run in, a, run in this little bit of yard. And I think that's a great thing, but when I've talked to one of the puppy mill owners who was talking about doing that, he, he seemed to think that it was such a huge thing that he would let the dogs out of that tiny little cage three times a week, just three times a week. That is, to me, bizarre. I know from my own dogs, they would just go crazy being enclosed like that. It wouldn't work for them. So you mentioned a key point there. The legal minimum requirement for the size of the cage, at least in the USA, is only six inches longer than the dog's body. I mean, is that it? Like, are there any other requirements on how to house or treat the dog? There are some states that at the state level require a larger cage than that. It might be double. Uh, it might be a little bit more than double. There are none where the dogs are required to be kept in a particularly spacious enclosure. But the USDA level, no, they do not have to, they do not have to let them out. Or you know, or, or or anything like that. I mean, it's just a barren, boring existence. They'll be taken out of the cage when they're uh, producing a litter of puppies and put into a different enclosure uh, in the whelping barn, where they'll be laid down in a little box and have an opportunity to have their puppies birthed and then nurse them, and when they go back into the cage after that's completed. So. The role of the mother is to produce as many puppies as possible, right? So how exactly does that process work? So the dogs will go into a natural heat cycle two times a year, generally. Now, if the first one's in January, uh, you know, maybe maybe it'll be you know, three times a year. At that point, there will be a narrow window of opportunity for the mother dog to be bred. So she'll be put into an enclosure or with a male dog or maybe the male dog brought and put into her cage. At that point, because she's in heat, she'll be receptive to the male dog, and they'll breed. Provided the breeding takes, there will be a uh, uh, 63 days, basically, you know, give or take a few, but generally 63 days, and litter of puppies is born. At that point, she'll stay with the puppies for a little while, nursing them. She's supposed to be kept with them for eight weeks, 
I don't really think that that's necessarily always long enough, but often they are actually removed earlier than that. At that point, she's going to go back into her cage. And, and but I mean, what I mean by at that point, when she's done nursing the puppy, she's going to go back to her permanent housing, her cage, and she'll stay there until she turns back into heat again. And then they just repeat that cycle until her body's worn out and she's no longer a productive breeder. So basically, throughout her whole life, she's just being forced into giving birth on and on and on. Yeah. She's treated like a breeding machine. Got it. Moving on to the father now, what's his life like at the puppy mill? His life is going to be very similar to hers, except for the fact that he doesn't have to come into heat to breed, and he's not going to carry the litter of puppies or birth the litter of puppies or nurse them. He's just going to rotate between his cage and a receptive female dog's cage. A receptive, I mean, a, a mother dog who's in heat, or mother-to-be dog who's in heat, and is uh, ready to breed. It's just so varied. I mean, I keep saying that word, but that really is the best description of what it is. Because when what you hear from my description of these facilities, it's just from one cage to another. And that's the only change in their life, except for the others who... You know, have to go through the, uh, uh, you know, the childbearing process. Yeah, from what you've described so far, it's pretty much analogous to industrial farming, where the animals are pretty much treated like commodities. Oh yeah, and I've seen puppy millers refer to the dogs as livestock. Yeah, that's that's what they call them. They see them just as agriculture commodity. This is this is a cash crop. So we talked about the mother, the father. Let's talk about the puppies now. What's life like for them in these puppy mills? So they're going to be the luckiest ones because their time at the puppy mill is going to be very short. The parrot dogs who are going to spend years in the cages, they're the ones who really end up with the trauma. They're the ones that you see people trying to rehabilitate when they've been able to rescue an old retired puppy mill breeder. They're the ones that have a hard time adjusting to touching grass or walking upstairs or going through a door. The puppies, they're out of there pretty quickly. You know, the first few weeks, they aren't even going to have their eyes open. They're just going to be nursing on their mother, kind of feeling around. They'll spend a few more weeks there. Uh, they should get one round of shots, uh, some early vaccines. And then at that point, they're going to be shipped away. Now, shipped away to where? Well, it depends on where they're being sold. A lot of them are going to be sold to a puppy broker. A puppy broker is a middleman between a puppy mill and a pet store. So for those puppies who are sold to a puppy broker, there will be one day a week where the broker is buying. And so the puppy mill will either drive to the broker's facility or meet a representative from the company at some sort of agreed-upon location They'll haggle with each other, and then the puppies will be sold to the broker. Then they'll go to the broker's facility, and they have to be quarantined there for a few days. At that point, if they're going, they'll be sold to a pet store. So they'll be put on a transport vehicle. It's usually a cargo van, and they can fit about 160 puppies in the back of these cargo vans. And they start driving a route, dropping off at pet stores all along the way. So let's say that the 
cargo van leaves a broker in Missouri. This van might stop at a pet store in St. Louis, drop off a couple stores, then you know, cut across to the uh, uh, south, maybe stop at a store in Little Rock, drop off some puppies, drop off some puppies in Memphis. You know, keep on going to South Florida, let's say. You know, maybe they're going to the Northeast, maybe they're going to the Pacific Northwest, but for example, be going to South Florida. By the time they get to the that store at the end of the route down near Miami or Naples, you're going to have puppies that are going to set in that cargo van for days, several days, because it takes a while. You know, having to get off the highway, drive through rush hour traffic, get to a store, you know, do all the things that they have to do to, you know, get the puppies out of there and the paperwork taken care of and get back to the highway. And that's noteworthy because puppies have to go to the bathroom every two hours when they're about eight weeks of age. Obviously, those drivers are not stopping and walking 160 puppies every two hours. So the waste just pools up beneath them. Now, these are baby animals with immature immune systems. They're on a stressful long-distance journey, and now you're seeing that there are obvious sanitation problems. When they get into the pet store, a huge number of them are sick. And at that point, they either go to the sales floor in that, you know, the, with the pet store hoping that there's a disease issue, a customer doesn't notice, or they go into the pet store sick room. So that, that's, that's one way that this could go. Another way is if they're being sold over the internet site and seed, uh, still coming from the same puppy mill, but they're going to be shipped either to an airport or in some cases, maybe to someone's front porch, depending on what sort of transport they pay for. Uh, and it's a terrible way to get a puppy, but at least some of those steps that involve that store, the puppy milk pet store pipeline are removed. Yeah, and we'll definitely talk more about the steps in the pipeline shortly. But just going back to the dogs who are in the puppy mills long term, so these would be the mothers and the fathers, can you elaborate more on the welfare conditions or what symptoms or trauma they would experience from this? Yeah, so I've gone to these puppy mills and uh, handled some of these dogs, and they just seem to be kind of living in a shell. Uh, a lot of the ones that I handled were just terrified of everything because their existence was just limited to this enclosure and the outside world was so big and new and scary to them a lot of them will have veterinary issues because you know we've got 200 dogs and there's you know puppy mill owner puppy mill owner might be married have a spouse maybe there's the kids that are helping maybe there's one person they're hiring but that's not that many and so a lot of conditions go unnoticed, small problems best or become big problems. So you end up with a lot of dogs who have their teeth rotting out of their head. You have dogs who have, you know, eye injuries. You know, maybe they, they uh, scrape their eye up against a broken wire on the cage, cysts between their toes from standing on wire flooring all the time, and just the general psychological trauma of having such a miserable life. Um, I will tell you though that there was a puppy mill raid that I went on in North Carolina with the sheriff's department, and 
this puppy mill kept all of these little mini poodles in a cinder block building. And the ammonia fumes were so intense that I had to leave the building every five minutes to breathe so I wouldn't throw up. Now, if you think about a dog who has such an incredible sense of smell, that just had to be hell. And they just seemed so miserable. So we took these dogs out of this building and we'd set up a temporary animal shelter in a nice clean warehouse. And we took all the dogs there and we put them in nice little enclosures. And each one was getting a veterinary exam and uh, treatment for any problems they had. But the most important thing was that there was a this massive ammonia feeding problem. And uh, so I leave, you know, the, the, the rest of the team has taken all the dogs to this temporary animal shelter that we put together. I went and got Sorry, so start. the ammonia fumes are from the waste produced from these dogs, which I'm guessing aren't being cleaned regularly? Yeah, exactly. At the puppy bill. So we got, we've got our new facility set up with nice, clean, fresh air. So I don't get to the facility for a few hours. I went to Starbucks, got some coffee. I had a reporter with me. I went and sat and talked to him for a little bit. We ended up getting some dinner. Then we drive over to the temporary animal shelter. And at this point, the dogs are all getting their hands-on vet exam but they're in new enclosures uh, in fresh air. And it was like night and day. Dogs with happy expressions on their face. And they'd only been out of the puppy mill for a few hours. And they were definitely in this big, vast world, scary and different than anything they've seen before. But they seemed so happy. And I thought, I thought it was because, yes, they were definitely getting a lot of people giving them hands-on care. There was a full team of us there that was loving on them and petting them and hugging them. But just having that fresh, green air just seemed to be making a difference for them. Now, you and I can walk outside and you know get some br- fresh, clean air right now. To us, we take it for granted. To them, that was the height of luxury. And that's so, that's so sad. Yeah. Are there any legal requirements for these puppy mills to do health checks or veterinary checks? So we managed to get a what's called a rule passed in the USDA in 2020 that requires an annual vet exam. So that is now required for any puppy mill that is licensed by the USDA. Once a year, a vet has to look at the dogs. Uh, That was a hard-fought rule, and it's not perfect. You know, there's no guarantee that in a BASA facility of 200 dogs that the vets will, yeah, especially these vets, the puppy mills tend to hire well eyeball the population and skip over a bunch of problems but it was a good step forward though so hopefully that'll lead to some problems being identified earlier and treated before they fester become massive problems on that note what's the prevalence of disease in these puppy mills well veterinary problems are some of the biggest issues that are found when inspectors go into a puppy mill So let's first take this issue of problems and put that into two different buckets. There are problems in puppy mills that violate the existing standards that some puppy mills have to follow. And then there are other problems that come just from keeping dogs in cages. So a fully compliant puppy mill that follows all the rules the USDA sets can still have dogs in tiny enclosures bred every heat cycle. They're probably never touching grass. 
So you got two different kinds of problems there, right? That which is recognized as a problem by law and that which is not recognized as a problem by law. Uh, the sorts of problems that are not allowed under the current regulatory framework, veterinary issues account for a big percentage of them. Big percentage of them. Because a lot of these guys just don't want to have vet bills gobble up their profits. So, yeah, I can't. I don't have an exact number how many end up having some sort of physical ailment, but it's a considerable number. Now, when you go to the pet store, those puppies who have been raised in a puppy mill, born to a stressed-out mother dog who lived in filth and misery, and then forced to endure that transport that I described earlier, well, you have a massive percentage of them that end up being sick. We've done undercover investigations at about a dozen puppy-selling pest stores, and every single one had a sick room that was just filled with puppies all the time. At any given time, uh, you could have maybe 15, 20% of the puppies in the store in the sick room. And then you've got others on the sales floor who purportedly aren't sick, but yet many of them are, and we know this because people buy them and then contact us and say, hey, this pet store sold me a puppy for $5,000 and he has parvo. What am I going to do? You know, that, ha- that kind of thing happens constantly. Hmm. So it looks like disease and health issues are quite widespread across the entire supply chain. Yeah. Which is expected, I guess, given the, the poor welfare conditions. I just want to go back to the mom and dad for a second here. So you mentioned the moms and the dads are the ones who unfortunately stay long-term in these puppy mills. What happens when they get too old and they can't produce anymore? So a lot of them are just killed. Uh, very easy for a puppy mill owner to shoot a dog, drown a dog in a bucket of water. There are some, though, some of these puppy mill owners who don't have the hearts of that. And they'll quietly reach out to rescues and hand over some retired breeding dogs. And I'm glad that that happens. You know, there are, so sometimes when you see these rescues with uh, uh, puppy mill dogs, that's, that's what happens. Somebody was willing to hand over one. So there's an organization called National Mill Dog Rescue out of Colorado. And they have relationships with a lot of these folks. And they get a lot of these old retired breeding dogs uh, just given to them. And they had a nice facility with vets on hand. I was given a tour of it. This is state-of-the-art. They've got a, a, a big yard with, with uh, you know, it, but obstacles that dogs can play on and, and climb on and basically go through a rehabilitation process and then get adopted out to a new home. So that does happen sometimes. The majority of the time, but it does happen sometimes. And I condemn puppy mills, but I want to give a, you know, hats off to a puppy mill owner that at least is willing to let a group like National Little Dog Rescue give these dogs a second chance at life. Yeah, these dogs have lacked happiness, freedom, and just basic care for pretty much their entire lives in these puppy mills. So giving them a second chance in life albeit for the short remainder of their life, I think is a very good cause. Yeah, yeah. Are there other similar organizations you would recommend? Well, there are a lot of different rescues that, you know, like there are some in Ohio, there are some in Pennsylvania. 
uh, finding shelter in Pennsylvania is one. Uh, there, there are a number that try to develop these relationships and help with these retired breeding dogs. The one that's most well-recognized is the National Little Dog Rescue because they're the ones who actually have a big facility. A lot of the other ones are just good, kind-hearted angels who are using their homes to do this sort of thing. And I can guarantee you that these groups don't have large enough bu- budgets to pay for all of the care the dogs need, so a lot of this ends up coming out of the rescuer's pockets. So, you know, God bless them. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's such a great thing that these people do. For sure. So we covered the retirement of the moms and the dads. What about the puppies? Like, are there any instances where they don't or they couldn't get sold? So there are puppies that don't get sold, for sure. Some of them will go to, you know, smaller puppy stores, you know, in smaller areas, you know, maybe a feed store or something like that. Some, though, stand up dead. It was a little over a decade ago, but the Missouri Department of Conservation found over a ton of dead puppies buried in a place owned by uh, a major puppy broker. That that company is now out of business, fortunately. But you know whether they were puppies, you know whether they were all sick puppies or uh, returns, or they just got too old and didn't sell, and nobody wanted to take them for breeding stock. Hard to say, but it was a very grisly find for the Missouri Department of Conservation. I can tell you that. Yeah, that's unfortunate. So final question on puppy mills, and then we can move on to the next step in the supply chain. What's the scale of puppy mills in the USA? Like, what's the production like, and what are the top states? Yeah, so the top states are Missouri, Indiana, Ohio, Iowa, Kansas, Oklahoma, Arkansas. Those are the top seven. And of the USDA licensed puppy mills, about 80% are in those seven states. Just half of them are in the top three, Missouri, Indiana, Ohio. Now, I keep saying USDA licensed puppy mills. So what does that mean? Well, if you have at least five breeding females and... You sell to pet stores, to brokers, who then resell to pet stores usually, or if you sell over the internet to people you know, that you ship the puppy to, that you don't meet face-to-face, then you're supposed to have that USDA license. You've got to have at least five dogs and then sell to stores or over the internet. There are others that might do all face-to-face sales, like let's say at a flea market booth or you know, via running ads on Craigslist and meeting you in the Walmart parking lot, you know, or at the truck stop off, you know, exit two or whatever. Those people, if all of their sales are done face-to-face with the customer, don't have to have a USDA license. But they might have to have a state license, depending on what state they're in. And uh, not all states have a regulatory framework for puppy mills. And at the state level, it just varies how many dogs you're allowed to have before you have to get a license. Usually the state laws are going to be a little better than what the USDA has, but not considerably, but at least somewhat better. Hmm. Do you have an estimate on how many dogs are produced per year in the USA from these puppy mills? 
Yeah, so we, we would estimate about 2.6 million puppies coming out of puppy mills every year. Yeah, 2.6 million. Now, here's the good news. Uh, in recent years, a lot of success has been had in cutting off the marketplace for puppy mills by prohibiting the sale of puppies in pet stores because that's one of the main sales channels for these puppy mills. So this is something that really started to take off in a big way in 2012. There were a few of these local ordinances, like in Albuquerque, for example, going back as far as 2006, but we really started to see momentum passing local ordinances at city council level to prohibit the sale of puppies and pest stores in 2012. Now we've got 448 localities that passed such a law in six states. Now, why do I mention 2012? Well, besides the fact that's when this really started to uh, become a popular thing for animal advocates to do, to pass these humane pest store laws, we know that in 2012, the average USG and licensed puppy mill had 87 dogs. We're talking adult dogs here, 87 dogs that they kept for breeding. We looked at the numbers, did the math in 2022, and found that in 2022, the average USG and licensed puppy mill had 57 dogs. So as this work has accelerated to prohibit the sale of puppies in pet stores, we've seen a one-third decline in the size of the average USGA licensed puppy mill. So that's good. At least that's going in the right direction. Yeah, that's a good sign. I do feel that there's definitely more awareness about puppy mills in recent years, which would contribute to the decline in, in supply and demand but there's definitely a lot more work to do. Yeah. All right, so we've covered life in the puppy mills, and then after the puppies are born, they are sold to puppy brokers who basically distribute these puppies across the USA. And as you mentioned, usually they're just stuffed in these cargo vans, and there could be over 100 puppies stuffed in a van for days. So obviously the health and welfare conditions are awful. So we've covered the puppy broker, and then if they do survive this, then the next step would be they end up at the pet store, right? So what happens then? What are the conditions like at the pet store? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, the, the pet store situation is just bad. You know, they, they'll have a, a very nice facade. So when you walk into the store, well, most of the time anyway, they try to at least have what the customer sees look nice. That's not universally true. I've been at some that didn't even try. But the problem is what's happening behind those glass display cases, what's happening in those sick rooms. Usually, what you find is some very young, minimum wage staff, many of whom love puppies, had no idea what they were getting themselves into, and thought this would be a great job. Hey, play with puppies. So they're in that back room, and so many of them are being expected to wing it trying to figure out how to deal with sick puppies. We have seen in one store that they had a medicine bottle, and it didn't have a pharmacist label on it. It had basically a label like what you might have printed out on your home computer, and the label said, The Cure. We don't know what was in the bottle, but they're, but these minimum wage young staffers are just giving this substance to sick puppies. And they don't know. They don't know what to do. I mean, you know, I'm not blaming them. I'm blaming the uh, owners of the company. Um, one of them told us on camera that several times she's come into the 
the store in the morning and found dead puppies. In this store, we found a dead puppy in the freezer. And that's just routine. They'll tell you when you go into one of these stores that, oh, we have a vet that comes in every week and examines all the puppies when they come in. So we thought, okay, well, that's interesting. They don't seem to be catching all of these disease issues. Let's take a look at that. So we filmed the intake exam with our hidden cameras in multiple puppy-selling pet stores. In this so-called vet exam that they tout, had about 30 seconds per puppy, just quick eyeballing them all. That's all it was. So it's just really a sad life. Uh, we did an undercover investigation at a store in New York City. This would have been around Thanksgiving 2021. And over the Thanksgiving holiday, I think they had someone come in on Thanksgiving Day very quickly just to feed them. But there was a sick puppy in the back room. They didn't pay attention to him. That Friday after Thanksgiving, our investigator comes in for her shift. She's wearing the hidden camera. But he's dead. Just happens all the time. Because they'd rather lose a puppy than pay the vet bill. Yeah, that's so sad. And for the puppies that do make it to be displayed to the public, they're often housed in pretty small cages or glass displays, right? So do they ever get let out to exercise? Not really. Um, some stores might have a playpen that a puppy can go into. Uh, I saw that in one store where they had a husky who got a little too big for the glass display case. So he was on a little playpen. But they're not being taken out and, you know, walked out, you know, on the back of the parking lot near the grass or anything like that. Uh, some will get out of a, the display case if a customer comes in and wants to see the puppy and interact with the puppy because they're considering making a purchase. Now, I can tell you that the average stay, according to most of these pet store owners, is two weeks. We know that just from looking at the date of births listed on some pet stores' websites, just uh, for each individual puppy, just during the last couple of days, some of them lately have been in these stores four or five months. I've gone into these stores uh, just when I was doing my due diligence to kind of sweep around and see what they look like. And I've asked to interact with some of the puppies. I've acted like I was a customer, got them out of the display case. Yeah, I'll give them a little attention, give them a little love. And there you can tell that they aren't spending much time anywhere except the glass display case. Because when you get into those little cubicles where you get to play with them, they're just balls of energy, just bounce off the walls. They're just so excited to finally be out of that little enclosure. And, um, you know, it was always fun interacting with them. Um, I hope that I made their day a little better. What happens if no one buys the dog? Yeah, if the, no one buys the dog, the dog's ultimately going to be sent back to wherever he came from or she came from. And uh, that can happen, especially if the dog gets to be too big. Now, the store will start cutting the price, uh, but there's going to come a point where they're just not going to keep the dog anymore. Now, I'll give you a story from Las Vegas. This is a pet land in Las Vegas. We had an undercover investigator working there, and in this case, the issue wasn't that the dog uh, that wasn't that the dog was a soul, but the dog had a serious health problem, and it was in a little cage in the back. And 
we knew he was getting sent back to the broker so the store could get the refund. And we knew that that might be a death sentence. Impossible to know what ended up happening with that dog, but it could have been a death sentence. Our undercover investigator begged the store manager to give her the dog. You know, she she was there as an employee, and she just begged, begged for the dog. Save the dog's life. We were even going to offer cash for the amount that they were going to get the refund for just to get this little dog out of there who was probably going to be uh, going to a fate that was not what the little, little one deserved. Store refused to do it because they wanted to get that refund. Uh, yeah, that wholesale price. So, you know, they went after that dog. But there are definitely puppies that get sent back because either there's a disease, a physical issue, or they just don't sell. Are there any other welfare or health issues that you'd like to mention in regards to pet stores? I mean, that's that's the main thing is that, it, you know, they just go live in this little glass display case. A lot of them are sick. A huge number of them are sick. And we just hear time and time again from frustrated employees that the owner will take the puppies to the vet until it's too late. I can tell you that in every store where we put an undercover investigator in who was hired as an employee and wore a hidden camera, if that investigator was able to get to the area where the freezer was and look inside the freezer, they always found dead animals every single time. The most dramatic instance was at a Patland store in Fairfax, Virginia. Our investigator counted one uh, 14 dead rabbits in this case. The rabbits were just dying left and right. We contacted the Virginia Attorney General's office who then worked with the Fairfax Police Department and the Fairfax Police Department executed a search warrant on the store. And when they got in there, and this would have been a few weeks after our investigator left, they found 31 dead rabbits and a dead Yorkshire Terrier puppy in the freezer. So a total of 32 dead animals. I don't know how they let things get so out of control. And we, to this day, do not know why so many of the rabbits were dying. But the store manager did plead guilty to animals or some sort of animal-related offense. On the note of rabbits, I just want to branch off here for a second. Um, I know our, our focus today is on puppy mills, but I would imagine the welfare conditions of other pet animals like cats, rodents, birds are just as awful. So, first of all, is that true? And what can we do about it? Yeah, so a lot of the laws we pass apply to rabbits. They usually apply to both uh, puppies and kittens. I'm talking, when I say these laws we pass, I'm talking about the uh, laws that restrict the sale of certain species in pet stores. They always apply to dogs and cats. They often include rabbits. We have sent someone to one of these facilities that was breeding rabbits for a pet store, and it was awful, awful, terrible conditions for the dog, I mean, for the rabbits. Just complete misery. Very filthy, uh, extreme confinement. It was just a rabbit mill. Now, there are kitten mills, but there's nowhere near as many of those as there are puppy mills. Um, because people just don't acquire kittens through the same means that they acquire dogs. A lot of people will go to a pet store or order, you know, order a puppy over the internet, that kind of thing. But cats, you know, a lot of people are getting cats because a cat walks up to their door, you know, they find a stray or maybe a neighbor has a litter of kittens, but, uh, you just don't have 
the same scale with kitten mills that you have with puppy mills, but there are a few hundred for sure. And then we haven't researched other species as very extensively, like guinea pigs, gerbils, that kind of thing. But some other organizations have gotten footage from some of those facilities. And it looks like there's reform that's needed throughout the commercial pet breeding industry. Well, clearly, this whole pipeline is problematic. So let's talk about what we can do to change this. Let's first focus on the production side, so the puppy mills. How can we stop puppy mills or at least improve the conditions for the dogs there? Yeah, so for decades, animal protection organizations have tried to raise the standards of care for dogs and puppy mills or use the term that we might use in a statute, a commercial dog breeding channel. And these reforms might include larger enclosures, daily exercise, daily socialization, humane flooring, so they're not just standing on wire all the time, either a space between breedings so that their body can recover from the previous pregnancy or an early retirement age uh, so that, yeah, they only have so many breedings and then be retired with, you know, with the requirement that they not just be killed, that kind of thing. But remember, 80% of the U.S. licensed puppy mills are just seven states. Now, if you include the ones who are not USDA licensed, assuming that the ratios are pretty similar, this industry is heavily concentrated in seven states. Those seven states all have large agriculture economies. That's important here, because what that means is, is that big agribusiness, in turn, has disproportionate influence in the state legislatures. So if you look at, like, say, for example, Missouri or Kansas or Arkansas, agribusiness, hugely powerful in the state legislature. And so many of these ag groups have been resistant to puppy mill reforms because, heaven forbid, if we give breeding female dogs an appropriate life, then, oh no, oh no, next we might be required to give egg-laying herons enough room to flap their wings or maybe enough room for a pig in a factory farm to take more than one step forward or one step back in her gestation crate. Obviously, we can't have that, right? being sarcastic here in case anyone doesn't catch that so i'm coming into this with zero knowledge on how state legislature works or how it's influenced um so for these seven main states with the most puppy mills you mentioned that the agriculture businesses have a disproportionate influence on the legislature can you elaborate on what exactly that means in every state the industries that are dominant in the state and are key parts of the state economy are going to be particularly powerful with elected officials. And so when it's uh, an agricultural state, ad groups will be particularly powerful in the state legislature. Now, frankly, I don't think that pork producers should bother themselves with the puppy mill issue. And yet, sometimes they do. Or, even if they don't, they've created a general mindset among the legislators to be wary of the animal protection organizations. And so it makes anything more than getting a dog an extra inch of space really, really hard. 
And that's why we've instead, in recent years, focused on prohibiting the sale of these puppies at stores. Because the sales have to happen in areas where animal protection groups tend to have more influence. So given the fact that these agribusinesses have disproportionate power over the state law, at least in these seven main states where the puppy mills are located, can the average Joe do anything to influence banning these puppy mills or improving their conditions at least? Absolutely. Uh, now, there's different levels of sophistication here uh, in, in working to stop puppy mill cruelty. Probably the easiest thing to do is to share content about puppy mills on social media channels so that people can learn and find out more about the issue and to help family members and friends who are looking to acquire a new dog for the family, help them so that they don't end up accidentally supporting a puppy mill. Maybe you find the kind of dog they want at a shelter or rescue. Maybe they have their heart set on getting a purebred puppy from a breeder. So you help them find a small-scale, responsible breeder who's proud to show the new family the mother dog and the condition she lives in. That That's very, very, very good advocacy right there, just helping people avoid buying from puppy mills. Because I can tell you, you know, 80% of the American public is against puppy mills, but many of them end up buying puppies that come from mills because they, they don't make the connection between the pet store and the website or the flea market and wherever that puppy's mother is is in a cage. That's one thing. Education and helping people acquire dogs from humane sources. The next level up is talking to state legislators and also your members of Congress about improving the standards of care for dogs, getting rid of puppy bills, that kind of thing. And then also... When you want to take it to the next level of sophistication, lobbying the USDA to do a better job. Right now, the USDA is considering implementing a new rule where they would require that any entity regulated under the Animal Welfare Act, so that could be puppy mills, that could be zoos and aquariums, it could be animal research facilities, any of these entities they regulate would have to provide an enrichment plan for the dogs in their care. We don't know what that's going to look like, so we're encouraging people to make comments to the USDA uh, to encourage them to go with a more robust enrichment plan that would include spacious enclosures, opportunity to run every day, uh, toys that are switched out regularly so they don't so the dog doesn't just get bored of one little toy that sits in the cage for a year. That kind of thing. Anyone who wants to take action or make that sort of comment can contact us through the Humane Society of the United States Stop Puppy Mills Campaign Facebook page. Uh, very easy to find us on Facebook with the Stop Puppy Mills Campaign of the Humane Society of the United States. Send a private message and we will help you make that comment. And the comment period will be open probably till about mid-March of 2023. So targeting the USDA, would you say this would be the most effective because this applies at a federal level, whereas if we try to target the state level, as we mentioned before, since it's heavily influenced by these agricultural businesses who are unlikely to improve these puppy mills, 
then it wouldn't be as effective. Is that correct? Well, yeah. So we're talking here specifically about on the production side. Right. In a moment, we'll talk about the retail side. But on the production side, if we could get reform at the USDA level, that would be definitely most significant. Reform could come from the USDA implementing their own rules because they, they so there's an Animal Welfare Act, and the Animal Welfare Act was passed by the Congress, and the USDA enforces the Animal Welfare Act. Under that, certain industries have to be licensed and inspected by USDA and meet the rules from the, from the Animal Welfare Act. So Congress says, all right, we're going to have this Animal Welfare Act. The USDA then puts the meat on the bones and determines what the regulations are going to look like. So they're the ones who set the cage size, what the flooring looks like, the uh, exercise and socialization requirements or lack of exercise and socialization requirements, and so on. So they can do a lot to strengthen those rules. But they tend not to. There haven't been any real significant changes there in half a century. Congress can come in, though, and say, all right, well, we're going to write the regulations, and we're going to pass a law that goes into the federal statute that specifies better treatment for these dogs. And there is a bill that will be reintroduced to the Congress, been introduced to several Congresses, and will be reintroduced soon for this year, called the Puppy Protection Act. It would be a total overhaul of those USDA regulations and vastly improved life for these dogs. But really hard to get things through the Congress these days. Uh, very, very hard. On that note, what does it take to get things through the Congress, and what's the timeline? It's a two-year period. So a Congress comes in in January of an odd-numbered year and wraps up in December of the even-numbered year. So we had elections in November of 2022, right? That's the even-numbered year. After the election in November, they had what's called lame duck session. That's where members of Congress, uh, maybe maybe they lost, you know, maybe they retired, but they're still in there until the end of the year. The new Congress comes in in January, beginning of the month. They've got two years. There are different ways to pass a bill. Now, if you just get a freestanding bill introduced, like the Puppy Protection Act, it's going to go through a committee. So there'll be like the House Agriculture Committee, for example, where members of Congress who are specializing in agricultural issues were served, will serve. There's also the House Judiciary Committee, where members who are more have more expertise in the judiciary issues and criminal justice and uh, you know what crime, what should be considered a you know criminal acts, for example, they might have that expertise. They serve on that committee. So you have these little committees that will just be a little small subset of Congress, and they'll consider one of these bills. The bill might go to one committee. The bill might go to two committees. Could go to three committees. But once it's through the committee process, then we go to the floor of the House of Representatives, and it'd have to pass on a floor vote. Then I have to repeat the process in the Senate. Or maybe it starts in the Senate, gets to the Senate first, has to repeat the process in the House. But either way, a bill has to pass both chambers of Congress, and it always starts in a committee, and then goes to a floor vote. After it's passed both chambers, then we go to the president, and he signed into law, or vetoed. Now, sometimes the fastest way to pass a bill is not to take that one individual bill through all those steps. 
but rather to amend the language onto another piece of legislation that is moving. We'll use the farm bill, for example. Every five years, the Congress passes a farm bill that renews all sorts of farm programs. In the last farm bill, legislation was added to it to ban the sale of dog and cat meat because we wanted to make sure that that never took off anywhere in the United States. There was also language added to that called the Pet and Women's Safety Act, which helped uh, shelters that took in women who were victims of domestic violence get grants so that, that women could bring their pets with them, so they have funding to you know, provide room for their pets. That's an example of where, rather than trying to take those bills through that long process, they were just amended to something else that was set to pass. That's another way that laws can get enacted. Very insightful. Final question on the production side of things before we move on. How realistic is it to aim for an outright ban on puppy mills across the country? For example, we've banned circus animals, we've banned dog meat, like you mentioned. What's preventing us from banning puppy mills altogether? I think that the primary issue is defining exactly what a puppy mill is. So is uh, exactly what conditions, what, what's the line between a puppy mill and something that's not a puppy mill? Whether we're talking about in terms of the number of dogs present or the amount of space that a dog uh, is required to have or the amount of TLC that a dog gets uh you know, that that's a primary issue right there. Right now, I'd say Missouri, Ohio, and Pennsylvania are three states that have passed laws that had they were be, you know pretty good bit better than what the USDA has. But none of them have passed a law that I would say eradicated puppy mills or ensured that any commercial dog breeding facility in their state was something less than a puppy mill. Uh but I think the main issue is, you know, de- defining, okay, well, at what point, because we're not going to ban dog breeding. You know, we're not going to have dogs go into extinction. W- what is the line in terms of what's acceptable and what's not? And that, that's something I'm not sure there's a real consensus on. All right. So we've covered the production. Let's move on to the sales side of things. You mentioned it's hard to influence the legislation on puppy mills for these main states. So instead of targeting the puppy mills, the alternative solution would be to target pet stores or wherever these puppies are sold, right, and and try to reduce the demand there. So can you elaborate on this solution? So the other solution is to go where the puppies are sold and address the problem on that end. And it's hard to regulate internet sales, especially if you're a city council member, but these brick-and-mortar pet stores... That's a whole different issue. And so now we have 448 localities. And I say localities because some are cities, some are counties, some are towns. 448 localities have enacted ordinances to prevent sale of puppies at pet stores. And that has led to action at the state level. So California was the first state to pass a statewide prohibition on the sale of puppies at pet stores. That law was passed in 2017. It went into effect on January 1st, 2019. Sorry, does that mean no pet stores in California, for example, can sell dogs? That's correct. That's correct. Okay. So um, they can work with a shelter or a rescue, but they can't sell these bugs. 
Maryland then passed a similar law in uh, 2018. Maine passed one. It actually passed their legislature in 2019, but wasn't signed by the governor until 2020. So that's going into effect. Washington and Illinois were the next two states. They passed their bills in 2021. There's still some stores in Illinois that uh, are breaking the law and we're working with the Illinois Department of Agriculture to address that right now. And then New York was the sixth state. In December, the governor of New York signed a bill that it's a two-year phase in, so it doesn't go into effect until late 2024, but at that point, no stores in New York will be able to sell these puppy mill puppies. Uh, there are about 600 puppy-selling stores in the country right now. 67 are in New York. So that bill itself is going to take out over 10% of the puppy-selling pet stores in the United States. They're going to have to either close or convert to a better business model, one based maybe on selling pet products and providing pet services. That's great. So for folks listening to this who want to pass a bill in their own state, but they have zero knowledge or experience on how to pass a bill, how exactly does it work? So, uh, I mean, I could write a 2,000-page book on this easily, easily, because I've been lobbying for for a century now. But the short version is, first, you've got to find someone in the in the whether you're targeting a city council or a state legislature or Congress, you've got to find an elected official that serves in the body that you're trying to get to pass this law to agree to sponsor it. Then you need to agree on the language, and it's very important to get the language right because there are all sorts of legal challenges that can happen. Also, uh, it, you've got to make sure that your language is tight so that you don't leave loopholes because the other side will have lawyers looking for ways to drive up a car through any any uh, loopholes that you inadvertently leave in there. Once you've got the language agreed on and the uh, drafters with the uh, body that you're going to get this introduced in, whether it's city council or state legislature, once they've done their you know, official drafting with the language you've agreed on, then it goes before that body. And if it's a small city council, you might just have a vote that city council, and that's that. If it's a larger city council, they might have a committee that a few members serve on that consider the ordinance first. That's always going to be the case in a state legislature or in the Congress. So find a sponsor, agree on the language, figure out the process for what, how a bill becomes law in the chamber that you are working on, whether it's a city council or a state legislature. Then you start meeting with the elected officials and making your case and answering their questions, and refuting arguments that the other side has made. You, at that point, want to get people who agree with you, Holly, sending emails, saying, vote yes on this, vote yes on this. You're going to want to line up people to give testimony when the bill is heard. Maybe someone who was sold a sick puppy by one of these pet stores, maybe a veterinarian who's treated sick puppies from one of these pet stores, that kind of thing. You might want to try to get some media coverage so that you can put more of a spotlight on this issue to draw up even more support. You find other groups to endorse what you're doing. Uh, you know, maybe shelters, rescues, maybe it's uh, some businesses that don't sell puppies but sell 
you know, pet products and support this kind of law. And then there's a vote and you either win or you lose. When it, if you win, it goes into effect. Then you work to make sure that the law is enforced. Right. Yeah. Enforcement is a whole nother rabbit hole we can go down. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So passing a bill definitely takes a lot of time and work and there's a lot of back and forth. So besides legislature, are there any other effective ways you'd recommend our listeners on how to reduce demand for dogs in pet stores? Yeah, so there are so many different ways that people can communicate these days and spread the word about something they care about. I got into animal issues in 1989, and we used to have to you know, get a booth at a festival or go somewhere where there's a crowd of people and pass out leaflets, that kind of thing. These days, people can share content on social media. Now, I think that that's a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing because, you know, if you've got 500 friends on Facebook, you know, and you limit your activism posting on Facebook, and it's just the same old people seeing your stuff every day, and it's a rather small audience. I encourage people to get out there in the real world uh, and kind of do it like we used to do it, you know, have more face-to-face conversations. You know, get printed materials from different organizations, pass it out, maybe make your own. But there's so much that can be done just with raising awareness and steering consumer choices so that people uh, acquire dogs from better places. That will help put puppy mills out of business. But I'll also say that it's important for people to study the issue that they want to dedicate their time to so they can speak about it with an authoritative voice. So with the puppy mill issue... Uh, we've got all sorts of reports and fact sheets at humanesociety.org slash puppy mills. Uh, you can go on our website and learn a lot. We've also got videos on YouTube you can see. Me, I'm a, I'm a reader. I, I read a, a part of a book every single day. I read about, I don't know, about 30, 40 books a year. The absolute best book to read on puppy mills to really master the issue with just one read is a book called The Doggy in the Window by Rory Tress. Uh, that's Rory, R-O-R-Y. I recommend people that want to work on this issue, order a copy of The Doggy in the Window by Rory Tress, read it, highlight the important passages, either read it again or at least memorize your highlights. You read that book, and you're going to be armed with everything you need to go out there and fight for these dogs. Nice. And I'll definitely link to all the resources you just mentioned in the show notes or the YouTube description of this episode. On your note of sharing content on social media or in real life, do you have any recommendations on what specific types of content we should share in order to have the most impact? Yeah, it seems to be different, you know, every social media platform. I mean, obviously with something like Instagram, you need more visual content pictures and videos, memes, share graphics. You know, people will take pictures from puppy mills. Maybe they find them on a Google image search and they'll make a creative meme that's educational. Um, I encourage people to really focus on the mothers in the cages, the suffering puppies, sick puppies in pet stores, that kind of thing. We've done a lot of research, focus groups, and polls to determine what people most respond to with this issue. And when they know about the mother dog in a cage, 
when they know about all the sick puppies in the stores, that's what really moves them. That you know th- that really affects people and 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 it opens some eyes. So um, those are kind of the key areas I really focus on. Now there are a lot of different aspects of puppy mills. A lot of things that you can uh, criticize about puppy mills, but those are the ones that really really upset people. So we've covered a lot of ground today. From your decades of experience working on this issue, if you could distill it down to three main call to actions for our audience, what would that be? Share content from the HSUS Stop Puppy Mills Campaign Facebook page. Um, contact elected officials urging them to support any efforts that will stop puppy mills. And, you know, this could be elected officials of the city, state, or local level. And once you've learned the issue well, see if your newspaper will accept an op-ed from you. So an op-ed is basically like a letter to the editor, but it has better placement and is longer. And local newspaper will take a an op-ed, which is kind of like an editorial from someone outside of the newspaper, about 500, 600 words, and if you draft a really good piece, you can get it up there, reach a whole lot of people. All right. So share content on social media and in real life. Contact elected officials, which I'm going to ask you about in a second. And then also publish an op-ed, which is kind of like an editorial, right? Yeah, exactly. So on this last point, how exactly do you submit a piece? So they have on the uh, each newspaper's website, usually, uh, they'll, they'll tell the steps for how it's done. They'll say what the word limit is. It might be 500 words. It might be 700 words. And they'll have an email address where you can send it and some guidelines. Um, I recommend that these be written, edited, 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 and edited again uh, until you have a really smooth, polished piece. Short paragraphs, written in a sixth grade reading level, making just a few key points. Just a few key points. Don't try to jam everything in there. The doggy in the window is like a 250-page book. Well, you're not going to get a 250-page op-ed. So you got to just settle on a few key points that will you know, be the main takeaways that you want a person to have. I like concise. And then they might email you and say, hey, we need a picture of you, a headshot or something like that. But uh, that's only going to happen if they agree to accept your submission. But quality beats quantity, that kind of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. On your other call to action of contacting an elected official, how exactly do you do that? And do you have any suggestions or templates on how to word the message? Well, let me first say that people, not everyone knows who their member of Congress is, who their senators are. And I'd say um, probably most people don't know who their state legislators are. So I'll give you two links where people can put in their address and figure out who represents them. The first is humanesociety.org slash ledge lookup. Ledge is in legislative, so L-E-G lookup. Humanesociety.org slash ledge lookup. That will help you identify who your members of Congress are. Then we have humanesociety.org slash state ledge to look up. And when you put in your address at that lake, you can find out who represents you at your state capital. Now, we don't have a link like that for your city council, 
Uh, but if you get on your city council's website, there's usually information there that can help you figure out who your city council person is. Well, it's been a very insightful chat today, John. Please hand off to the audience where they can learn more about your work or any other resources you would like to share. Yeah, humanesociety.org slash puppy mills. We have fact sheets. We have reports. We have everything you need to know about puppy mills. And then the there is one national pet store chain that is the uh, largest seller of puppy mill dogs in the United States. That's a company called Petland. We also have a link, humanesociety.org slash Petland, where you can learn a lot about that company, that business. And uh, we encourage people to avoid buying at these puppy stores, avoid ordering puppies over the internet. Basically, avoid getting a puppy from anywhere that uh, keeps you away from that puppy's mother. Because all of these sales outlets have one thing in common. They keep the puppy in front of the customer, but they keep the mother dog hidden. Why do you think that is? Right. That's, that's why, you know, with these websites and these pet stores, you know, you see a gorgeous puppy in the pet store window. You see a gorgeous puppy in the browser window. People don't stop and think to ask themselves, where is that puppy's mother? And she's usually in a rusting cage in Missouri or Indiana or something. Yeah, it's a very powerful question to ask yourself when you see a dog for sale in a pet store. Where does it come from? Where's the mother? And unfortunately, a lot of people don't actually pause and think about this question. Yeah. But anyways, thank you so much for your insights, John. It's This is an issue I'm personally very passionate about. So I hope this episode can spread more awareness and plant the seed in more people to do something about it. So... Yeah, thank you so much, John. It's an absolute pleasure having you on. Yeah, well, thank you for taking it up. It's been fun. That's it for today's episode of EcoChat. If you enjoyed it, we'd appreciate it if you could leave a rating and review on whatever podcast platform you use. We're also on Twitter and YouTube. It really helps others find our show in the search algorithm. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on EcoChat.